Okay. Uh, sorry about the late start, everyone. Um, welcome to the Listen to This Bull Live Show. This is the show where we talk about bullshit in the insurance world. And there's so much to talk about that we will always have a show for you. Every day we can talk about bullshit and there's new bullshit. We never don't duplicate the bullshit. Um, I just had the power just shut off to my entire house. And when it came back on, uh, cameras and audio weren't working. I hope everyone can hear me. Either way, we're getting underway. So if you can't hear me, too bad. Okay, so today we are going to be talking about the differences between public adjusters in the Southeast, the Midwest, and how things are different in the Northeast specifically. I've got Tony Diulio and Joel Fullman uh, waiting in the wings to come on to help discuss this. These are individuals that work in the Northeast. Tony, Joel, how are we doing, guys? Doing, doing very well, well Matt. By the way, that is the fastest disclaimer I've ever seen pop up on anything in my life. That was impressive. Yeah. I mean, we were going to make it tiny words. Uh, but speed does the same thing, so it's fine. <laughs> I really thank you so much for, for allowing me to come back on. I always do enjoy being on the show, and especially when you get to talk about my home turf. You know, I right. first, first get to see the uh, the initial post online, so my my uh, my ears perked, and I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad I get to be here, especially with someone as uh, as knowledgeable and competent as Joel is. Um, you know, one of the one of the good guys in the industry, so it's good to have him on too. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully, you won't eat any subtitles. You understand my accent. <laughs> it's really not that bad, so we should be okay. There is going to be a way to use this to open this thing. I know. What the hell? I don't know how to use a bottle opener. Suddenly, I tell people all the time it's one of the reasons I got married is just to be able to get a ring that I can open beer bottles with now. So that uh, that's not the bottle opener. Yeah. <laughs> you found it. I found it. I'm an idiot. That's all. That was the can opener. Uh, wow. You know that's not a can. Well, I shouldn't be drinking this. Yeah, I was gonna say, you, you do know that's not actually a can, right? Right, right. It is not. It's made of glass. There are some differences. All right. So both of you work in the Northeast, you, uh, based in New York, Joel. Is that where you're Correct. at? Correct. Yeah. I'm Staten Island, so I'm right next to Jersey. So we work in New York, New Jersey, a little bit of Connecticut. And Tony, you're to based charge. in PA, but you handle claims throughout most of the Northeast, don't you? That's correct. So yeah, home base is Philadelphia, um, although I live in New Jersey, but our office is in Philadelphia. But yeah, we've got cases from Connecticut, candidly down to Florida. We've gone as far out um, as California. So we're, but Northeast is obviously the very, very mass majority of our work is the Northeast. Right. All right. So uh, Joel brought this to my attention when we talked several, maybe a month ago or so when we were planning out this, uh, this particular episode, that there is a lot of things that happen in New York, um, possibly Jersey, maybe even most of the Northeast that seem to be a little bit different from what I've experienced or really even know about happening throughout the rest of the country. Um, Joel, do you want to go into that at all? There's so many things we speak. When I speak, uh, I'm not sure. So basically, the big difference between New York and any other states is insurance brokers are allowed to take a fee. Since 2006, I mean, they made a separate law. So when a broker calls you, the chances of you paying him 50% is really high. Another part is in New York State than any other state, you are legally allowed to take any fees from mitigation companies to cleaning. You have to disclose it now. They changed the rule two years ago. But the disclosure is very important, obviously. But any public adjuster can take any form of fees. So as long as it's being disclosed. So New York State is run mostly by the insurance brokers. And they will try to take away jobs from you. Because the homeowner calls, you call off the policy, and they basically tell you, I have my guy. So this is this is the first problem when it comes to New York is the insurance brokers. So you're and saying that in essence, it's very um, 
in-house when when a claim comes through that the agent gets the call the agent has you know an adjuster lined up who they can get a fee from they've got mitigation companies lined up who they can get a fee from they have everything kind of set together so it's it almost becomes like a one-stop shop of use my guys i've got it all arranged uh, ahead of time for you so there's not really as much of an open market as there might be in other areas i mean that sounds an awful lot like dealing with property managers you know, they, they always have someone to refer the business to because they're going to get some kind of a kickback. And when you say fees, you're talking about kickback fees. No, it's and legal. This is legal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can send you after the show the, the law. Yes, it's it's 100% legal, the broker being involved. Can you think- are the adjusters, can you take a fee from a mitigation company? Yeah, I mean, they adjust the same thing. We can take a fee from any part of the claim doesn't matter if it's cleaning. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what part of the claim is, as long as the owner is knows about it and we disclose it, we can take a fee. Really, there's not many states that I'm aware of that allow this. Does Pennsylvania well, allow that? No, no. Pennsylvania does not allow. It. Jersey doesn't allow it either. And and the idea right. being is you don't want to, you don't want to create that that kind of underground. Uh, and I know it's it's disclosed in New York, which is is obviously good, but that kind of behind the scenes connections game, um, I think there's there's obviously some issues that that could come up with that because you are first and foremost creating another pocket to to feed, right? You've now got agents, public adjusters, remediation companies all having referrals that are having to go out. You're creating increased costs for the industry. And look, the truth is that cost gets ultimately very likely borne by the carrier in the sense that you're going to be working to increase costs on the claim to cover those referrals, right? Nobody wants to go to a client and say, hey, by the way, I'm going to represent you, but the remediation company is going to give uh, part of your money back to me from the claim. So you're you're paying extra so that I can get extra money. I mean, nobody's going to going to really be selling it that way. So I could certainly see some concerns. However, I also see, you know, there could be some benefits too, right? Joel, I I assume as a result of this, you're able to push good remediation companies um, through this, uh, through this process rather than, you know, anyone coming in from, let's say the carrier, because you can say, look, we've got an ability here to, to, to vet them and uh, arrange fees so that they can do the job for an appropriate cost and, and still be profitable for everyone to use. Correct and, and, and not correct. There is two points to it. The problem is I want to work with the best. I don't really care for the fees because the owner owes me the 10%. Let's say they offer me 15%, right? So you cannot double dip. So I'd rather get it from the homeowner than get it from any mitigation i don't want to be tied down because you always want the best mitigation for that like there's one mitigation that's great for um he is basically very good for water i have a different mitigation that's really good for fire and soot and smoke the challenge where i see the biggest bullshit right listen to the bull right bullshit is when it comes to the fires i will see public adjusters going in for one percent this hand right one percent but they still get paid almost 80% on the claim. And I think this is where it's not right. They're working directly for the company doing the remediation, getting such yeah. a large fee from that rather than being are, able to undercut, you know, a troop, you know, a public adjuster who would be doing it otherwise and say, well, look, I'm only going to do it for 1%. And really they're making their fee by getting the costs on the, the remediation. Kickbacks. Bill. It's All not right, only so- remediation. You get the rebuild. You get everything. You get cleaning, what, whatever's out there. In reality, they're making closer to eighty percent that they're making twelve and a half percent. And this is the biggest bullshit out there that I see. I believe they're just not fair because I would take it for seven percent, but once it's under seven, I might as well walk away. So if you're working honestly, you're having a big problem picking up some fires. I mean, there is a. Uh- there's a way for this to be similar in other states, not every state, but many states do allow contractors to 
pick up the bill on behalf of the policyholder for a public adjuster, as long as it might be disclosed. So they could just, in lieu of the policyholder making that payment, they could pay on their behalf. And if they don't use that contractor, the policyholder would still be on the hook for those fees. But there's there's a inherent conflict that's there because, you know, which master are you serving? Who is it that is paying you? That's generally the person that you will want to do it the way that they want you to do it and not necessarily the way that benefits the policyholder the most. This is a little bit disturbing in a well, way. It goes It goes actually a deep st- I mean, people call me up then they want to go to appraisal, right? The challenges that I'm seeing by the first or second offer, they're out. They, they, they don't write any rebuttals. So let's say the insurance company comes in with 170. They'll get her up maybe to 210, and then they're out because they're only focusing on the first two offers, getting their commission, and on to the next one. So it's hard Even to get. Or are you talking about public adjusters just no, getting into I'm, the. I'm talking the few, that, the few that works this way on very low um, percentages. And they get it from behind, so it's 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 tough because when we look at the paperwork, the guy got seventy thousand dollars, and we were able to put it up to four eighteen, with another hundred and twenty on the mold coverage, so we got the person close to four hundred thousand dollars more. So there's no there's no motivation to work the claim. Hmm. Are appraisers able to take a? commission or a, a percentage-based fee? Um, no. Hourly, where, we are, where I am. Yeah, okay. Just making sure that that didn't misunderstand well, you on that. Right, at least there's some level for them that uh, the, the appraisal portion is still not too biased of a, of a situation, which yeah. would not happen with any percentage uh, basis. Um well, what I mean, other states up here too. I mean, there's there's other issues outside of New York because New York definitely has that concern. But there are other factors. When I saw you post about this yesterday, Matt, I started looking into kind of my thoughts on it because I've seen a lot of adjusters now in other states, in other areas of the country, and how they kind of perform and work. And there's kind of three factors that I keep coming back to. Right, number one is population density. Uh, if you take a look at a population density map for the Northeast, what you see in the strip. Uh, in essence, Philadelphia to New York, you know, through that through that area in New Jersey, is is such a mass volume of people in such a small amount of area. Number two, you've got an age of homes condition. So the other map to take a look at is if you look at the average age of homes, you've got some of the oldest homes in the country actually contained in the same area as well, and then you've got um, the age of the um, profession. In the area, right? There are regulations that have been in place for public adjusters in the Northeast for a very long time versus out West, uh, where things have been kind of uh, approaching at a slower pace when it comes to actually getting regulations and laws for them. So an age of the profession, along with those two other factors, you've got, a, you do have a different breed of adjusters in mass in the Northeast, right? And you can see it pretty clearly. If you come out to, you know, something like the PAGPS conference that we had done and then go down uh, to the wind conference, uh, in Florida or go out to Texas, um, for one of theirs, you know, you're going to see a different group of people. And part of it, I think is largely involved in education that comes out of these areas. Uh, originally the, um, the kind of old guard that exists in those areas from the age of the profession and what has been kind of brought down through the ages as a result. So these are all factors that kind of go into it because they create different types of arguments that need to be made as a result, right? You're dealing, you know, if you're looking at an age of a 10 year old property in Florida or in Georgia versus a hundred year old home in, in Pennsylvania or New Jersey or New York, right? You've got different problems to deal with. And as a result, that just creates a different breed of adjuster. Yeah, but it's also different. Mm -hmm. Sorry. There's there's a trend with newer PAs of um, documenting things a little bit more thoroughly and getting down into the nitty gritty a lot more than the old guard, so to speak, would. They wouldn't necessarily have had to do that 
they could just focus on principle of indemnity or broad ideas along those lines. You're not treating my client fairly kind of a remark. And they would actually get away or, or be able to win an argument with that. Do you find that because the profession is so old in New York that those kind of arguments are still successful? Can we can we just take two steps back before we come into this? So we have to remember that New York was one of the first public justice association out there, right? I believe in 1980 was the first one. So yeah. you have a lot of PAs where the grandfather is actually the first PA. So the challenge that I'm seeing is in the 90s, when they used to come out with checks, the whole negotiation was verbal. They still continue to this day, try to call up the adjuster, give me another 20, with not writing a rebuttal. The newer, since there's more schools, more education, and more out there, so the younger PA really are trying to be better than the older. The challenge is the pushback from some older PAs are incredible. They will not be helpful. Basically, when I went into the business, I called 12 and they all hung up the phone when I told them I want to enter the line. So as you guys, like we can talk, one PA to another PA to a lawyer, this will never happen in the Northeast with the older guards. We call them paper pushers, basically. <laughs> I, I've noticed this with uh, with the old guards. So it, it, and we're just going to call them that for for lack of a better term, but with with older PAs or with any any profession really, um, anybody that is your competitor, you keep your cards close to your chest. You don't want to share any information that would benefit them in any way. If you've got information that you feel like is successful, you don't want to allow someone else to have that information because you want to be the only one that can be successful by doing that. And there is a there is a they hold back their information. They don't want to give it away in any way. And then there's these new PAs, the younger crowd that has grown up with social media, has grown up with the open source concept among technologies that has allowed them to say, hey, I can share all my information and gain some in return and we all benefit. And there's a huge difference working with the old guard versus the newer PAs as a result. Personally, I like the open source concept quite a bit. I've always enjoyed that. My teams have always told me that I'm too transparent about things, but, you know. Well, it's certainly one thing we can agree on. I mean, that's the reason, you know, I do those lunch and learns once a month. You know, they're, they're completely free. They're, you know, that doesn't charge anybody anything. They can go back and they're online forever uh, as a free resource because there's a lot that can be gained as the industry, as an industry for everybody to get better, right? For everyone to gain additional information and become better, it helps all of us. Because the truth is, we all know there's bad adjusters out there, right? There's no secret. There are scummy guys. There are, you know, the, the, the teabag, you know, on the, in the ceiling type, uh, type adjusters. And we need to do what we can to educate the good ones so that they are the ones that continue to succeed and put the face forward for the industry, not, not those, you know, other the bad guys in the industry, if you will. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the, the truth is we've also got one other big problem uh, that you see in particular areas of the country that drive the industry and it's the insurance companies, right? When you have these areas of great population density with older homes, you've got issues with the insurance carriers and their desire to be paying these claims, right? Carriers, don't like paying claims on old homes because they feel like they're becoming a maintenance policy versus an actual indemnity policy for a loss. So you get creative adjusting from their, their side. And I say creative adjusting, it's probably the nicest way I could put it, but uh, creative adjusting from the carriers to try and push back on covered losses in areas that they wouldn't normally want to be covering. And they just don't, they just don't like, that old homes can still have covered losses. They don't like that lower income places that might be the home of a hoarder can still suffer a loss because when they walk in, they just don't like what it looks like and they don't want to pay money for that property. And you get more of that, I think, in the Northeast than you might in other areas of the country, at least in volume. And that creates a different need for the public adjuster to fight fight a different way than they would in other areas. I saw, I saw a big problem with the older IAs. Remember that the same way there is old PAs, the same way there's old IAs. So what I figured out is 
almost all the IAs will cut down so low the estimate and entice you to go to appraisal. Then the appraisal is the same friend of his. It's the same circle. <laughs> so I, only by the older IAs is, is what I see. This is a big problem where they cut you 30, 40% and you show them the rebuttal and they basically point blank say, we don't care. So litigation takes too long. You know how this goes, right? Most people wouldn't touch your claim less than 200. So the only option we have is appraisal. New York is one of the best states when it comes to appraisal, thanks to Mr. Wachowski. But, you know, it's, it's wrong for them to force your hand to go to appraisal when they send it off to the next friend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there, there's... There's a lot of that. And what's interesting, though, that you say it's the old, you know, kind of the older IAs. I've actually seen it with the, the new people coming in for carriers, right? The, these, you know, high school grads that, you know, want, want to get through college and, and can't figure out what to do or, you know, drop out of college halfway. And they're they're kind of indoctrinated, indoctrinated into this new system for carriers of, you know, just do what we tell you to do. And they become like machines, right? It's not you're not dealing with a person anymore. You're dealing with someone who looks at, you know, a guideline that says, oh, I'm supposed to do this here. So I don't care what you have to say. It's what I'm doing. And I see a lot. I've seen a lot of that, at least in, in our area, because they just they're they're mindless, you know, drones. And it creates a ton of problems for the industry as a whole. I mean, so they, they're I, required uh, to have those guidelines. That's that's the weirdest part about a lot of this. The insurance companies are required to publish some set of regulations within their their firm of how their claims are supposed to be handled but then we get surprised that there are guidelines and that they're a little bit messed up but they're required to have these things uh statutorily uh, stephanie brings up a good point that the a lot of times the appraisers will uh write an estimate that's only a few hundred dollars more than the adjuster originally did i often find that they might write an estimate that's almost exactly the same as the adjusters if they write one at all uh does that happen in new york um we, we've been having great success in appraisal i don't want to complain most appraisal are fair and honest the challenge is that the insurance company will send out the same two appraisers where we know right away yeah um we know we know right away that they're going to be unfair so we make sure we fight on the umpire so we don't even start before. Usually it's a court appointed umpire. You know, it's, it's the game. Give an example with one of the uh, insurance companies in New York. Am I allowed to say a name or not? Okay, let's burn some bridges. So Seneca, right? So when you have a claim with Seneca, the chances of going to appraisal is close to 90%. There's, there's, there's no ifs, there's no buts. It's, it's, go, it's going. He's, he's going to write an estimate 80% less than the actual loss. So if it's a million dollars, you write it off at 200K. So we have no choice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, that's Chris brings model. up. Huh? I'm sorry, Matt. Go ahead. Chris brings up an interesting point here. Uh, new adjusters could appraisal way more. I've always been able to settle losses with the old adjusters. I think that that's, that's been my experience as well. Um, and several people on the, on the groups have, have agreed with that concept, but usually the older, more experienced adjusters are a lot easier to deal with. They're like the old guard adjusters. But I also find it very interesting and funny that uh, in many states, public adjusters complain that the insurance companies want to go to appraisal too much. And I come from a state where appraisal is broken and you can't get to appraisal even if you want to. So it's it's really interesting that I would dream about a state where we could go to appraisal <laughs> and you guys are all... Uh, mad that you're having to go to appraisal, but no. that's that's why there's differences between one state to the next. Right. Yeah, you probably put Rob's comment by the way, because Rob makes a really good point as to why Chris is always so successful. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's probably because he's problem. old. <laughs> um, the point is, when it comes to some people, they say, "Look, as long as the insured is happy, agree." So this is the big part. What Chris doesn't get, maybe he does. I never spoken to him. There is a new way, it's called the IEP, right? IEP reports, the quality test, the restoration company's bill is sometimes way up more than the rebuilt. So the, the question is, when we're going in for a water claim and it's $200,000 the bill, 
How much is Chris? Is it forty thousand? I can I can settle a forty thousand dollar claim any day with closed eyes. It's it's pretty simple, pretty easy. But when I'm going for two hundred thousand and they're bringing the engineer out and they bring an IEP out against me and they bring an SIU against me in EUO, can he win? We always win. The challenge is it's very easy to say I'm better. No one is better. When you go for big bucks, they're going to try to torture you. Torture. Basically, they do create a model, right? They create a model of of how they do it behind the scenes to to create a system that is as difficult as possible to contest them in a lot of states. Now, New York is, is great for appraisal. Pennsylvania is actually really good for appraisal. New Jersey, terrible for appraisal. Right, it's all limited to the carrier scope. If you if they want to replace right. one shingle and you want the roof, you can't go to appraisal on the roof. Right, you go over one shingle and nobody's doing it. And they've created that system on purpose. But I think that's why everyone's in agreement. And Chris, you know, right. I only did. But the uh, like, Chris, you, you brought up the word, so I got to stop you. Yeah, um, scope. Uh, that word. That word. You know, this this is such bullshit. Oh my god. Let me, let me ask you a question. When, is amount of loss ever, ever defined? Um, some new policies are defining amount of loss. They are... Uh, You're shitting me. I haven't oh, seen no, that yet. No. I'd, I'd actually so, like to see that. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure did, that I've seen those in states that I've... Did it. Um, who else did it? So they, they came through and specifically said, because they used the word scope. NJM just added a, sent, added a phrase in. When we... Uh, disagree as to the amount of loss, not the scope, then either party right. will demand appraisal. I mean, this uh, is the problem with most of the states. They're trying to describe amount of loss, uh, excluding scope. They don't really explain what they mean by scope. Uh, are they talking about the scope of repairs, the scope of coverages, the scope of damages, the scope of... Right. And you said it right there, scope of loss. damages, right? The you damage know, is what the question is. That's that's the scope that should matter. And Because I'll agree with that. I, right. I will stand by scope of damages should... When we talk about scope, that's what we should be talking about. Is there damage? If you say yes, it goes to appraisal. If you say no, it doesn't go to appraisal. I get but they, it. They, you know, the argument that they give us all the time is that, you know, coverages aren't appraisable. And that's fine. For most yeah. states, that's true. But that just means coverage A, B, C, D... Yep. Which one is there coverage for? Now we can go to appraisal because you open up coverage for coverage A. An individual shingle is not its own individual coverage. Correct. That is exactly right. And that's what, I mean, some states get it right. Look, Pennsylvania got it right. Pennsylvania allows you, when you say roof, you can if you say one shingle or, or all roof, doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter. You've got a question of, of the scope of the damage and the repairs necessary, go to appraisal. But New Jersey courts have, have just gotten that one wrong. You know, many courts have. It's unfortunate. Um, uh, John Wolfkowski, who wrote a book on appraisal, happens to be in New York. I wonder if anybody's actually read that enormous monstrosity of a book. If you actually read it, please comment in the post here. I'd like to know. Do I count? I don't know if I get the count. I got mine right right there. Um, it it's going to be a great resource. You know, the, the, one of the nice things about having literature out there, like Wachowski's book is having that ability to cite to it. But the other issue becomes the carriers aren't bound by it, right? You, it's a great resource to, to, to look for information, but if a carrier comes back and says, that's not what my policy says, I'm doing something different. You might be, you know, up that Creek without a paddle. So there is a ton of value to it, but also a ton of importance in having public adjusters know, hey, when I don't have that resource, how can I understand this policy on my own? How can I argue it without having someone else have to tell me what to do? Uh, Helmuth asked a question, who controls all of this? And I assume he's talking about, you know, who defines things and things along those natures. Is a one signal entity in all the states or does it depend on the government of each state? You want to tackle that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, if you if you like. Um, so really, what it comes down to is twofold. You've got the the state legislator who can define regulations for the carriers, but are ridiculously controlled by the carriers. The carriers have nearly unlimited funds for lobbying efforts and and the like, so they don't get much regulation. 
What really ends up controlling is case law in those particular states when they analyze these policies. So short little history about this, when it comes to policies, for the longest time, most carriers used an ISO form for their policies. ISO forms were accepted all across the country and put out um, for these carriers to use. And then carriers started to modify it, but they modified little tiny ways because no carrier wanted to take the leap to say, I'm going to be the first one to do this because they didn't, they didn't know what would happen, right? The actuaries who write these policies make their determination based off of historic data of, hey, we know this policy provision and how it's going to be interpreted, so we've got data on what's going to happen. Carriers over the past 10 years have, have come in with younger um, younger powers that be, the CEOs and, and, and down, to come in and say, we need to, we need to change this because this is how it can benefit us. And farmers started it up in the Northeast to test new policy language and everyone else has followed suit. So carriers have come in and said, oh, we can challenge this and we can still see profits because we're creating limitations within the policy with these new, this new language that the courts still rule in our favor because they say it's a, you know, it's a contract and it's what parties have agreed to. So let's start changing it all the time, right? So they start adding in new endorsements, releasing new forms, canceling old policies, and the case law can't possibly keep up. And so I, I made the assumption that a lot of that was caused by the newer PAs that are very eager to document and really get into the semantics of the policy. The policy nerds like myself that are really digging into that, which forces the carrier to be a little bit more specific in their language. Um, but, you know, the, the more specific they get, the easier it is for us to interpret it, but also the less coverage there tends to be. Yeah. And. I, I thought that was going to be the case, too, because, you know, I've, I've gotten to win a lot of cases based off of the nuances of the policy. I consider myself certainly one of those policy nerds um, when it comes to arguing these things. But the truth is, Matt, you and I have such a small impact on the the pocketbooks of these carriers. Right. So that, yeah, we might have I've got you know 600 plus cases in my office at any given moment. You know, if you put all of the adjusters together, they're not handling the majority of claims that come through a carrier's desk, right? Public adjusters don't handle, if you look at the, the number of claims made versus the number that have public adjusters on them, public adjusters are the far, far minority. And what they're doing is they change the policy because they can send that letter out to the client on a non-public adjuster file and say, hey, so sorry, you're not covered. And here's why. Right. State Farm being a perfect example with their access provision in their policy. State Farm had access coverage like every other carrier that if your toilet overflows because of a broken drain line, we're going to pay to get to that drain line. All of a sudden, State Farm comes in and says, oh, we're changing it. We're putting in a new endorsement to reduce coverage. Uh, we're not going to tell you about it or give you any options with it, but we're putting it in there anyway. And now the carrier sends out a letter saying, so sorry. We only pay for that specific point for which the water or steam escaped. Client reads it and says, that's what my policy says. I don't have a choice here. So they can have a justified, in their eyes, position to deny a claim when they've got new policy language that they get to argue. What would, would it take to challenge public adjusting laws across state lines? Would that be a federal law? So I'm not, Anthony, if you've got kind of an example or something if you mean uh if someone from new york wanted to challenge public adjusting regulations in new jersey you've got I to go through the means is how do we challenge them as a whole instead of individual states is that possible well if you're trying to challenge the public adjusting side no so it's not it's not federally regulated um it's it is state regulation that that covers public adjusters so you'd have to go through the particular state in and of itself yeah, not that's that's the way that I see it too. But if if you could, there is the NAIC Model Act, and you could adapt that to be more beneficial. Um, but that is presented to all the states; they have the option to adopt those or not. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be. Yep. Do you ever see the possibility, Tony, of having federal laws regarding public adjusters or no. insurance companies? No, nor sh I mean, truthfully, nor should they. I mean, I, I'm a, a much bigger proponent of small government concept in general. So I don't I wouldn't want federal regulation uh, largely because if and this actually came up in one of the groups recently, 
you know, trying to push the carriers rather than dealing with 50 different states and 50 different problems and 50 different, you know, lobbying efforts, just consolidating it all in one. The truth is we would lose that fight because now not only, yes, we are being consolidated. Great. But so are the carriers and that un, that unlimited funding for the carriers. I'm sorry, it would win out. We've got a much better chance on the smaller stage of the state court than we would on the federal federal level. So I, I see no benefit in trying to go big scheme like that, really anywhere. Yeah. Uh, Joel, I'm going to let you take this question. Uh, Chris Alder says, if you are truly an advocate, why would you want to, um, I lost it. Why, why would you want to go to appraisal? In 15 years, I've been to appraisal about eight times. I would never want two of three people I don't trust to decide the fate of my clients. I would rather use my skill and negotiating abilities to settle a claim. I'll put it back on the screen. It's it's a good question why we go to appraisal sometimes quick. We have experience with some adjusters. They also have, uh, we don't give negative air scrubbers. We don't give continuous. We pay three shingles on and on. So I like the numbers game. When I have previously experienced with someone, I met him seven times, I know the outcome. As soon as it's proper to go to appraisal, why do I want to delay? How many rebuttals can one man write until we're going? So there's no magic. There's no tricks. You basically write your opinion. You show it that it needs to be done. And when the company is saying no, what are you going to do? We don't pay for it. We just, I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to give you an example. I had a 24-square-foot roof, wind damage. It happened in July. Um, one of the companies told me, you're not getting a penny more than 14000 Last week, Friday, we finished appraisal, $78,000 without an umpire. 99% of our appraisals never go to umpire. And number two, my own appraiser that we use never writes up his own because he believes our estimate is good enough. So we only had to use once in three and a half years an umpire. So that's pretty good. It's very good. Because the gridlock that the staff adjusters and the desk adjusters and the supervisors is sometimes so much that it's easier to say, you know what? Enough is enough. It has nothing to do with skill. It has to do with time. So I have made the decision. We're not going to win this argument. We need a minimum of 40. The most he was willing to give me is 17. I told him no thanks. And in New York State, as you know, Bukowski has made it pretty easy for us. In 2014, when Cuomo signed it, we can go to appraisal. So I'm so, using the state laws. There's, there is the, in some states, the fact that appraisal is successful at increasing the amount that's being uh, paid out could be evidence that uh, bad faith or something along those lines has happened. Um, it doesn't necessarily give you a private cause of action, but there could be evidence utilizing right. that. Is that the I'll case you, in the Northeast for the most right. part? I'll give you one other example very fast. UPC, as you all know, is going bankrupt, right? UPC last year, September 1 and 21, you remember September 1 was a big rain? So they only gave me 11,000 maximum. They were quiet nine months. They didn't want to talk to me. After nine months, I took it to appraisal. We just got, four weeks ago, 67000 from eleven. So, of course, appraisal works. As Once you get the cluster, you get the bad people out of it, it goes like this. Yes, you do need a new roof. Yes, the attic needs to be fixed. Yes, there is some mold in the attic. It needs to be replaced. So all the bullshit that goes on with the uh, desk adjuster that doesn't know a lot, this is basically what you push out when you go to appraisal. You usually meet someone more educated when it comes to construction. Yeah, I think there's another really important aspect to it to answer Chris's question, because I, I think one of the factors that goes into this, Chris, is claim selectivity, right? You've got, I think you are likely in a position where you're able to you know, really pick and choose your, the claims you want to take um, just from knowing you. I know you're a good adjuster. I know you're, you're, you're pretty successful in the area. So you get the claims that really probably don't need to go to appraisal because they've, you know, they're 
relatively clear cut. You get, you know, good arguments on your side and you're able to resolve it. There's, I think, some people that might be cutting their teeth or, or you know, doing volume work or handling claims that they they haven't been able to, to kind of filter through as cleanly. So they've, they're kind of forced into appraisal, right? You're, if you get into a situation, I've been in it myself with Joel, you know, Joel, Matt, I'm sure has done it, where you've got a claim where the carrier just says, you know, you could have all the best arguments and negotiation skills on the planet. They're just not going to pay. And you've got no choice but to go to appraisal to increase that value of the loss. You know, it's not at this stage where, you know, adjustments have become much more contentious and much more, um, uh, you know, can I just cut in one more time? It's very important. Chris is making a good point. Most of our appraisals, why we have to go, is usually because the insurance company sent out a TPA contractor to mitigate the damage, and they don't properly document. So the kitchen is wet, but the guy is catching pictures from the kitchen three days later when it's almost dry. I'm asking, where is, where is my photos? I don't have. The second I remove the kitchen with my contractor, full of mold. So if the TPA is not going to do the right thing, this is sometimes they're saying, look, this is surplus. Um, uh, this is they've been there, there for three days. But the whole house is wet. How can you dry out the house for three days? The wood is still wet when they leave. So most of our problems comes in usually not everybody, but a lot of times is when TPA contractors do the mitigation. This is when our biggest problem happened. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we should probably have an episode specifically about TPA soon. Um, there's there's so many issues that go along with that, and the regulations change quite a bit. Um, I might I might do a little bit of research and, and present a show about that specifically. That might be helpful. Probably David Sweet would be your best guest on TPAs. Yeah. There's a bunch there. There's a few that would be good. And, you know, the, the other aspect, I mean, because I know we're, we're trying to keep this based on Northeast and, and kind of those, well, that concept. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Every time we get on here, it feels like it shifts to appraisal. I don't know how it happens. Every, it does seem to, yeah. It happens all the time. Because, um, appra look, appraisal is such a big issue in the industry and everyone knows that. Um, but, you know, when looking at it with the eyes of this Northeast, you've got the carriers who are, you know, sometimes using it as a, a testing ground for what they can get away with and what they can't. You've got, you know, attorneys who are working for the carriers who drink the Kool-Aid and are pushing these issues because they recognize they can, you know, ultimately get more work out of it as a result. I mean, there's so many things you've got to realize carriers have, have shifted now to wanting to push a claim past appraisal straight to litigation because they, they realized adjusters were using it to avoid litigation and paying out too much money on it. So now they see these defense firms who start to be the ones advising them and you're creating a, you know, a self-fulfilling beast of, of, of defense firms wow. trying to push these issues. That's very interesting. So the, the defense firms are, are advising these companies. And of course, they're going to advise them to allow it to go all the way to, uh, well, not necessarily to trial, but to litigation so that they have some billing hours available. Yep. Um, Without have, have you seen the transfer to where they're, they're really listening to the defense counsel uh, firms more? When, when did that really start happening? Uh, you know, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I started seeing it probably about seven years ago, um, where it was becoming a big issue, but I mean, that might've been my kind of moment of really diving more into this. Um, yeah. and you know, I've been doing this for 11 years now and the more I dive, the more problems I find, but I've started making a conscious effort to go talk to carriers directly. So I actually got in with the mutual carriers of, of Pennsylvania. They invited me to come talk at one of their events. And I went and I said, I had one goal. I said, guys, if you want to save money on a claim and get claims resolved faster, the second you see my name involved, call me. I will do <laughs> everything in my effort to resolve the claim so you don't have to get an attorney involved. That was my only message because I can settle a case. I know when I get, I actually started this test five years ago. I, when I get a claim in, I know what it's going to resolve with some level of, of certainty where that claim is going to ultimately resolve. So I did a test. My accuracy rate is like 78% accurate on my numbers put in early on on a case. And I know it's not, it's not 100%, but 
it, that's pretty darn good. That's to know where a case is going to resolve once it comes. What was the name of that insurance company that invited you up? So that was actually the entire, it was all the mutual carriers. Uh, so the mutual companies in Pennsylvania have their own association. And so all of the mutual carriers. Uh, so in the area. if you are a PA in Pennsylvania and you happen to be on a claim that involves one of these mutual carriers, all you have to do is write an email that happens to mention Tony Diulio, and yeah. your claim will be settled. You know, what's great. It's actually worked. Um, so two of the carriers who were at that conference, I've now created relationships with, and they've, you know, they've been honest with me. They, we've, you know, opened up communications. We've been able to resolve claims. I mean, it's not, the problem is these mutual carriers are smaller and they're not, you know, this, I'm not creating any kind of grand change in the area, but it's doing something to help the, the policyholders as a whole, because they don't need to pay me as much for, for litigating the case. They can get it resolved in a month rather than two years. I mean, it's the times I can help as a result. It, it really has made such a big difference. Uh, Digitory Claim Solutions is, is asking how the Kool-Aid tasted at that meeting. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. The, the people who were at the meeting, they weren't the, the field guys, right? These aren't the field adjusters who are out there. It's their, their higher ups. And in just conversing with them, they're so, they are mostly normal people, right? It's just, oh, you know, they've got kids that are going to school. They've got stuff. And you realize what happens. They are right in this middle range of they're not in the streets and they're also not seeing the, the, the effects up on high from these carriers and the regulations that are coming down within the companies. So there, there are a lot of, you know, look, I'm just doing what I'm told type of people. But if you can actually get through to them, if you can actually get that moment uh, of, of connection, it can make a big difference. And it goes back to what, you know, um, I know what keep mentioning Chris, and it's just because I, I know you, Chris, but um, the, um, the old guards, the old people in this industry, when you can create that connection, old or new, they recognize the value of that. And I think there's a lot of younger people in this industry who don't do that, right? They go straight in and it's they're, they're going for the jugular and they want every dollar and oh, they're not going to so stop true. until they get it. And there so is true. there's a ton they, of value in creating a good relationship. But there's not enough training and associations because the only way I found out about the association is two days before you did the, uh, I believe in September, so September where I met you? Yes. So the, the fact is that once a month, your association wasn't in my inbox and we were open already for three years. It's a problem. In New York, the association, I tried to sign up a lot of times. It's dead. Um, there, there is not a lot of people willing to guide younger. So saying the younger generation is out to kill, no. We basically train by people like Matt, by Cal, by Vince. So we only do what we're trained. There's no such a thing as doing it local. So what I know is thanks to all of the people on the internet. So I would rather stay in New York because I'm going to give a different example. I tried to put together a class now in New York very hard. There is no, there, there, there is not a lot. Everybody makes their own party. There's not like a young group and everybody wants to grow and be successful. And the biggest part where it's a problem with me is like no one takes IEP reports. What what is it? You're the only adjuster that does IEP. So this you know, is I mm -hmm, sorry. You you bring up an interesting point that well, you might not even brought up this point, but it, it is something that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. Um, it's easy from for someone in my position that has a podcast that is on YouTube all the time to tell you all the ways that the insurance company is acting inappropriately. And I can get a little bit irate and I can tell you how how it's wrong what it is that they're doing. But if you were to during a claim as a PA start being a dick to the adjuster and telling them how horrible they're being and how unethical they're being and say things in those ways, it could actually ruin the file. It could ruin the claim for your client. It's very easy for me to tell you that it's wrong, but the actual relationship that you're having with this other adjuster has to be different than the way that I might be saying it in front of a crowd. It's easy for me to get the troops riled up about the bullshit that's happening 
But the reality is the way that you have to deal with that can be very delicate. Um, okay, I'm going to give you an example. Tony is a lawyer, right? How many times did yeah. you argue against other attorneys, yelled, and you still had a beer after that? It's probably more than one, right? Yelled? Yeah, I don't, I don't yell at other attorneys. Okay, so spoke. <laughs> ne <laughs> negotiated. <laughs> I know. I mean, look, yes, there are, there are a number of attorneys that I work with. And I don't, we don't, you know, no one really gets beers anymore after work, unfortunately, but I'm all for it. Hey, any defense attorneys on here want to get one, just let me know. Um, but no, we keep, we keep cordial relationships uh, and we do it on purpose because we recognize what happens in a courtroom doesn't have to affect our relationship personally. And Same thing as on a claim with me. Yep. When I, I give 110%, I don't give 90, I give 110%. Yep. You know why? Because my client has to be put back to pre-loss conditions. It's a big argument what it is, what it's not. But for me, what it is, is as long as the adjuster is reasonable, I'm reasonable. Because when I show them my estimate and they're going to bring in an engineer to try to deny the claim, this is my problem. Why did you give me coverage when the claim was 40000 why, when I give you an estimate of 150, are you trying to bring an engineer to deny the claim? In New York now, they're bringing a lot of engineers out. Because for, that's for what regular they're, claim. Right, but that's what their internal uh, logs tell them they have to do, Correct. right? And that's that's what we've got to be aware of, that Matt's class on, engineering is, on engineers and dealing with them is fantastic. I'll do my own selfish plug. When it comes to education, you know, you can go right on our website to our blog, and see all of the videos that we offer for free. You can join MAPIA, right? Mid-Atlantic Public uh, Insurance Adjusters Association. We have multiple meetings a year where we teach courses on exactly this type of stuff, right? I, I teach myself uh, in these classes to make sure that we're getting information out there. I mean, there is a ton of, of content for people to, to grasp onto. They just need to know where to get it. And that's what Matt is so fantastic at with these broadcasts, with the school, with everything that he has been involved with to get that information out can, can really make a difference in this industry. Correct. So I use Matt's questions when it comes to the engineering. It helped amazingly. You know how many engineers have responded with the answers? Zero. They don't work for me, they're telling me. They don't you put them on answer those questions. It does look, though, that they're being unreasonable by the time it gets to Tony. If you ask a very reasonable question and they refuse to answer it, it doesn't look good for them. Uh, but there's different ways that you could go about kind of getting them into that into that mindset. But it, it does require relationships. Back to my point originally, you know, there's there's bullshit that I present. I, I present bullshit all the time by making it making you aware of the problem, but not really giving my audience how to present this in a way that could actually be resolved. And that's hard to do because it's going to depend on each individual claim, but it's easy to say when something's wrong, it's easy to say that you, you can win this by okay. getting them to do that. Getting them to do that takes, takes a lot. What if, what if the assurance desk adjuster tells you, Joel, we get them on the next one. So how much money is enough to say, I don't care for the homeowner and the next relationship. So Not. there's a very big topic that no one wants to bring up. So am I walking away now with $40,000? Say, I don't care about my homeowner. The next one, we're going to hit it off. So, no, there's no. A, well, no, there's, there's a big difference between keeping a good relationship and accepting less money than the homeowner is owed. You can have a good relationship where you disagree with somebody. I mean, heck, I disagree with Matt all the time, and I consider us having a good relationship. So uh, it's... <laughs> No, the, the truth is that th those two things don't correlate, right? You don't have to walk away to keep a good relationship. You can, you know, just be professional, but, you know, really uh, have good uh, communication skills with the adjusters. You know, don't do things like, you know, insult them or yell at them or, you know, things that you would think, I think the three of us know is, is second nature, right? You're not, obviously, if you want to keep a good relationship with someone, you're not going to call them an asshole in an email, but that doesn't mean you walk away from money. Right, so this is what I'm saying. I'm always good with all the adjusters, but the second they're trying to act in bad faith, we will point it out. Yeah, in the I don't email. think there's. I, I think there's a stark difference between having a relationship and 
giving up on this claim in order to win the next one. I don't think that's an appropriate relationship that you'd have should ever have with an adjuster where, you know, you just give up on this client. You're supposed to look out for their best interest, not the next person's best interest. Having a relationship with the adjuster means that you're going to know each other will know that you're not going to bullshit each other, that the stuff that you're presenting is reasonable and necessary and that you're not just going to just load it up with as much as you can. You know, adjusters tend to think that we're greedy for some reason. There are greedy adjusters. There's there definitely greedy public adjusters. There's greedy insurance adjusters. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, our job in this industry has got to be over the next, you know, 15, 20 years to stop making it us versus them. I don't know how we do it. I haven't quite figured that out. But the truth is we all represent the exact same person and should all have the exact same interest in mind. And it's getting that homeowner back to whole, right? That's what all of us, all of our goals should align. So why has it just become so damn contentious, right? You've got public adjusters who see a bottom line and want to make the most money possible. You've got carriers who want to pay as little as possible so that they make as much money as possible. And if we can somehow eliminate that problem, I don't know, I don't know if you could, but you get to a much better result in the end because it shouldn't be us versus them. It should be all of us representing the property. Yeah. But the insurance companies, I believe, because everybody plays by their own rules, there's no specific rules. Like they want to follow the IICRC with three days machines. They want to follow it when it comes to photos. They want to follow it when it comes to certain stuff, but they will not follow any other part of the IICRC. There is no guideline that we need to follow. And this is where it's frustrating. Every day I start, okay, it's Gart. Okay, what am I doing here? It's chop. So what am I doing? The, the problem is there is no rule that we're following. And, you know, that's a challenge. With, with State Farm, the biggest chance to be approved is just called TPA company, right? Yeah. And, and you know, we've just slowly got to fix that regulation. I mean, it's one of the reasons these groups are so great. Mapia has our own lobbyist who's actually, we're finally in a position where we're going to start getting proactive rather than reactive um, with our lobbying efforts to put forward bills to help protect the property owner rather than just try to stop insurance companies from getting bad legislation passed. You know, these, these organizations can do a ton of good. By the way, if you want to join the Mapia holiday party on January 5th, go over to mapia.org and join the organization and you are free to come. Um, it's, but those organizations are absolutely fantastic and critical to the advancement of this industry because otherwise we are going to get blasted by by them over the next 10 years and public adjusting as a whole will change forever will you try to put a cap on public adjuster fees in new jersey i have no interest in putting a fee cap on public adjusters in new jersey um, do you see I, any reason why any public adjuster organization would ever want to put a fee cap in place yes um, i know i know I, exactly why they they want to limit competition that's a ridiculous thing. Yes, but that's the only reason. Look, the truth is there are going to be, in every industry on the planet, there are going to be people who take advantage of a free market system. I'm sorry, it's the nature of the system. You are going to get people who charge too high. But if you are good at what you do, you should be able to go in and convince people that there is a reason that you can charge 10% and do just as good, if not better, than the person who's going to be charging you 30%. And if that's yeah, market, Someone who charged 40 in Philadelphia... I know I, I've, never, I've never seen a 40%. I've never seen somebody um, charge 40%. I mean, look, it's it's crazy. I'm, uh, you don't have to tell me. But I yeah. also know that on a $10,000 claim, the homeowners are going to get taken advantage of every single time, and they deserve a public adjuster. And if that adjuster needs to charge 35% to do that on a $10,000 claim, and the homeowner chooses to do that, more power to them. That's their, that is their decision to be made, not mine to try and control them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We are uh, out of time. I appreciate your time, gentlemen. Uh, we are we're done for the year. This was it. I got no the year end one. The whole year. Wow. Like, I, get, I get to take a week off. That'll be good. I feel so honored. I get the. I mean, Joel you and I. We're, we're we're celebrities, Joel. We get the the end of twenty twenty two to listen to this bullets. I think I think I think I think one of the shows you should make is definitely a lot of public adjusters don't know marketing and SEO. 
So I think uh, we need a little bit more of that when it comes to our the Northeast. Yeah, I mean we can we can definitely dig into more of Northeast type uh, claims handling uh, throughout the next year. I'd love to have both of you on again. We won't be on until next year. And I, if you are interested in being on the show as a guest, please reach out to me. I am trying to schedule the next uh, three months at the moment. So if you have a topic idea and would like to be on the show, please give us uh, a private message or send an email to Matthews, but with only one T, at listentothisbull.com. You can go to listentothisbull.com, by the way, to purchase merchandise to help support the show. We don't make any money on this show. So if you want a T-shirt, Tony's got one that says, I heart MM, and it's got uh, my face in the heart. He's the only person that has ever purchased that shirt. He's probably <laughs> the only person that will ever purchase that shirt. But there Dude, are other things. You can get a beer stein. Favorite shirt I own right there. <laughs> it's a ridiculous shirt. I love that you bought it. Uh, but we will see you guys next year. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much, Matt. Joel. And happy Hanukkah. Right, Joel? Yes. Yes. Yeah.